Hi, and welcome to Security Explained. I'm Chris Grayson. I'm Drew Porter. And I'm Logan Lamb. We're coming to you every two weeks with tips and tricks on how to protect yourself and your loved ones out there on the internet and in real life. Today, we have Royal Rivera with us from Haas Online. He is the CCO. Thanks for joining us today, Royal. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, what is, because uh, I'm, I'm not super familiar. Can you tell us a bit about what Haas is? Give us a little bit of background. Yeah, sure. So just really quick, uh, Haas Online is an automated trading platform. Uh, been around since 2014, started by two brothers, uh, Quintus de Haas and Stefan de Haas. And yeah, we've been surviving, um, you know, I guess more so flourishing during all these market movements just due to the you know nature of retail moving in. But yeah, we build software that allows people to easily automate their own strategies. Very cool. Does that make my stonks go up? Uh, no. In fact, what I like to always say is that if you don't know what you're doing, uh, the only thing we're going to help you do is lose your money fast. faster. Faster. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that is what Noted. I strive for. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I can post it on our Wall Street bets then, right? Yeah, of course. Great. Perfect. We basically speed run losses for people who don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I assume you also speed run profits for people oh, that yeah, do absolutely. know what they're doing? Okay, absolutely. Perfect. For those who have something that is profitable and bring it into our system, they're very happy people. Well, that's not me. I don't. I actually haven't used the system before, uh, but, but I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like boomer crypto over here. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> buy yeah, ETH. Right. My, <laughs> my chain link. <laughs> my, uh, yeah, I was like looking looking at my my taxes here. It's like, oh yeah, you know what? This is actually going to be pretty easy because it's just like uh, capital losses everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> he has years of write offs just waiting. He's so excited. He got three grand every month or uh, every year. Amazing. It's the long game. <laughs> oh man. Well, uh, talking about the crypto space, there's been quite a bit of stuff happening in the crypto space related to security. Uh, including social engineering and I think one of the largest, if not the largest, bus made by the DOJ when it comes to potential money laundering of crypto. We have, uh, what, what was that? It was that couple in Manhattan, right? I, I forget their name. Uh, I, I saw the wife's terrible you know, rap videos. Yeah. And if you haven't seen any of those, uh, I'll make sure to put those links in the description below so you can also suffer with us <laughs> <laughs> look to be fair at least every verse was unique and there was no chorus whatsoever it was just <laughs> verse unique. after verse yeah it was oh. just it just hit banger after banger you know <laughs> man when i have like a terrible thing that happens to me i'm gonna have royal like spin it so that it sounds really good and like not <laughs> as bad <laughs> well i just can't wait for like major laser to remix it and it's gonna be like the hottest thing dropped at edc this year oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I looked up their names. It's Ela, I think it's Ela. Two two I or I L Y A Lichstein and Heather Morgan, or mm-hmm. the or the people who were arrested in the in the. I guess you're referring to the Bitfinex. Yeah, uh, Bitfinex bus, right? hack from 2016. I mean, that was a while ago, but it, it's crazy because I, I was trying to look up the credentials of the people of like why they would be involved in money laundering of of that hack. And, and I couldn't find anything personally. Right? Yeah, I, ha- mm-hmm. 
I have my own theories on what actually happened there. I don't think they're involved in the hack whatsoever. Oh, oh, I, I, we want to hear. We want to hear these juicy yeah, theories. Drop, it. drop the knowledge. All right, all right. So, I, I need to put on my tinfoil hat. Is this a conspiracy? No, no, no. This, this, this oh, okay, just okay. makes so, sense. It's just going to make let, sense. Let's, let's, start. Uh, let's let, before we jump to the conspiracy, Royal. Can you run us through like what actually happened? What is this whole Bitfinex money laundering thing that the that the DOJ has has issued a statement on? Yeah, so back, uh, I guess back, you know, or should I say, sorry, crypto still considered the Wild West, right? Well, we're talking, you know, we're going gold rush to California and we have to go through, you know, a bunch of dangerous territory here. And back in the day in 2016, uh, a large hack happened on Bitfinex. And Bitfinex at the time was one of the largest, if not one the largest uh, crypto exchange um, during that, that time frame. And more so for those who aren't really familiar with what Bitfinex is, is or why that name really means something, uh, if you know what Tether is, it was a huge issue uh, regarding the basically the the governments were saying that or different projects, people, governments, whatever you want to say, uh, were claiming that Bitfinex was printing Tether regardless if they had the one to one backing they claimed. Uh, I'm pretty sure that that was true at the time. Uh, crypto was dumping uh, pretty heavily. Uh, this was 2018. Sorry, I jumped ahead a little bit. Uh, but yeah, so if you're if you're familiar with the Tether being printed with not one-to-one backing and, oh, Tether is going to explode or implode, whichever word, uh, then you should know Bitfinex is related to that project at the time. But really, the, the, the gist of it is was Bitfinex got hacked. I'm going to have to look it up while we're talking to remember which one it was or what what the hack was. But a large sum of Bitcoin was taken from Bitfinex and it was sitting in a wallet. OK. And basically what what they're claiming is, is, yeah, at the time it was 71 million Bitcoin or 71 million dollars worth of Bitcoin was stolen from Bitfinex. And then it was held up until recently, which now yeah, someone's going to do the conversion rate. Uh, Four billion. Yeah, four and a half billion. Four and a half half billion. billion. Yeah, so it's a massive thing, right? Like it was, it was pretty big at the time. It was huge, and now it's even worth more. And basically, what happened was, is the individuals who were involved here uh, were caught moving the money around, right? They had the the big stat, they had the stash of coins that they got from the Bitfinex, and I'm trying not to get into the theory here, but what they ended up doing was, is they were trying to siphon the money off into their own personal accounts, which you know, that's already its own problem in the, in the, to begin with. And I guess, again, for those who aren't too familiar, a lot of the exchanges, the big exchanges, we're talking Binance, Coinbase, uh, Bitfinex Now, Gemini, et cetera, they all have agreements that where they can blacklist coins entirely. Like, hey, we're not even interacting with these. They're stolen. Uh, you've seen this with the Ethereum hacks that happened. Um, even at the time, they were even willing to roll back. For those who are familiar with Ethereum and the Ethereum DAO um, hack, uh, I wish I had the exact uh, year, but they were considering rolling back the Ethereum chain, which caused a huge uproar, uproar over these hacks, but kind of going off on a tangent in that one. But basically, the these tokens and the addresses associated with them get blacklisted. So basically, any time you try to move them, somebody knows, right? Somebody knows the exchange either won't accept them. And what they were trying to do is they were trying to funnel these money. I'm, prefer, I'm pretty sure everybody here is familiar with the turn of tumblers things like that, which are are basically back in the day when Bitcoin wasn't so heavily watched and people still thought it was 100% anonymous. Spoilers, it's not for anybody who doesn't know that. Uh, But what they would do is they would generate a ton of addresses, hundreds, let's say, let's just use easy numbers, thousands of addresses, and they would then 
make a bunch of transactions so you couldn't really follow where the coins were. Well, the problem is, is it all lives on the blockchain and you can just kind of map it out now, right? You're like, oh, well, they just shuffled it through these up team thousand uh, addresses. So yeah, basic, the, the nutshell is Bifinex got hacked in 2016, $71 million worth of Bitcoin got stolen. It sat. And then sometime, I guess in the last year or so, that money started moving, started um, beginning to be involved in transactions or being moved to the internal, like going to their exchanges that they had KYC with. So they had their full you know, ID, et cetera, associated with it and their own bank accounts. So they were moving stolen funds to an exchange. The exchange is like, uh, sure, let me just write down here. You're moving these funds that we know is blacklisted. Oh, and you want to withdraw to your bank account. Yeah, no problem. Now we have it twice. And then, of course, the feds come knocking on your door. Hopefully that's a that's a long-winded way of saying, yeah, Bifinex got hacked. No, and, and this is this is like um, – I'm probably going to bring it up a, a few times in this conversation. Um, I've been making my way – or finished this book, American Kingpin, which is the mm-hmm. story behind uh, Ross Ulbricht and the Silk Road and kind of a lot of stuff that was happening there. And there's a lot of like really shady shit that happened uh, in even in the investigations when they're going after Ross Ulbricht. So like DEA agents were actually stealing – money out of the wallets that they gained access mm-hmm. to uh, through seizing the servers like and and, and all of this like, yeah there was this there was this pretense that it's like well it's bitcoin so it's totally anonymous but like the whole point of of most of these cryptocurrencies i'm sure there's some cryptocurrencies where this is not the case but you have this blockchain data storage mechanism and the whole point of blockchain is it's like publicly verifiable right it's a public ledger Mm -hmm. it's out in the open and granted you can yes you can try to do these things where you're anonymizing it by like putting it in like various other accounts or some sequence of things where it's kind of hard to trace back where it came from but the fact that it is all publicly verifiable and permanent means that you know we have capabilities now that can unwind these sorts of transactions. But you better believe in the coming years, they're going to become more and more sophisticated. There is very little anonymity when it comes to Bitcoin, especially if you're tying your transactions to a bank account that you're then uh, pulling funds out into. Like it's, It is the canonical problem with money laundering, right? It's like, yeah, getting the money is the easy part. Turning the money into something that you can actually use without getting caught is the really hard part. And in this case, they really messed up there. Yeah. yeah. So that so these individuals, they went through, they used blacklisted coins and they KYC'd that. Yeah. Wow. That's and what really is, what is KYC? Uh, know, your know your customer. customer. Yeah, so basically anytime you sign up to an exchange, you have to give them, you know, your ID, passport, firstborn, uh, blood sample. If you haven't gone with a modern exchange lately, it's pretty intense trying to get an account, let alone business accounts, uh, which we can go and complain about that all we want. And to, to add on to what you were saying, Chris, uh, chain out, chain, I can't say the name, but it's chain analysis combined. Chain, is, chain analysis. Thank you. Yeah, it's one of those <laughs> oh, companies that, that, you know, they do that type of thing. And there's tons of them, right? I mean, you could just Google Bitcoin tracing company and you get a list of companies that are now doing this so that the the ability to, to kind of look at Bitcoin itself, you know, let's just focus on Bitcoin here uh, and unwinding those transactions is there. Now, there are certain coins that, you know, claim full anonymity. And, you know, I mean, one of them's like XMR, right? That is one of those where, you know, there's million dollar bounties even by the U.S. Or I think the U.S. government, what, said 650,000 if you told if if you had an exploit against XMR. Yeah, it was um, like it was just right over half a million. So, yeah, yeah. And XMR is Monero. 
for those Correct. who don't know. Now, I'm not saying, look, hey, you do everything in Monero, you're fine. God, you know, <laughs> no one can say that about anything. Who knows uh, what capabilities are truly out there, uh, especially with, you know, your your kind of state actor side things. But but yeah, no, they basically, like you said, they KYC'd uh, blacklisted funds. Yeah, that, that's crazy. Like, what happened to the good old days of money laundering where you take your stolen crypto and go to, you know, shady online gambling sites to then turn it into gift cards? <laughs> well, the good okay. old days. <laughs> so, so there, <laughs> I don't want to, you see, I'm, I'm kind of worried about what exactly we can say and not say because there is a way they could have done this correctly. Oh, yeah. Um, there is a, yeah. and I don't know if we want to get into that, but uh, just to kind of move the conversation along, Let's talk about the theory, okay? Now, okay. the theory is pretty simple. Uh, I I believe I read it somewhere else, and you know, there's some other discussions in other crypto forms. Nobody believes they're the ones who did the hack. There's no way. The just based on credentials, how they act, you know, they no one believes they actually were the ones who did the hack. What most likely happened was they bought uh, that that those Bitcoin at a, at a game at a ridiculous discount we're talking like maybe five cents on the dollar right mm-hmm. and who wouldn't take that deal right if i'm sitting on you know a couple billion dollars worth of funds i can't move and you're over here saying hey i'll give you five cents for every dollar i'm still going to make out like a bandit right so it's that's the that's the side i think what actually happened i don't think they did the hack i think that they for sure probably bought it off somebody for a extremely discount price even a penny on the dollar would still make that person walk out more than happy, right? And that would be clean versus the currently blacklisted coins. And and I know I'm using the word blacklist, but that's not exactly the correct term. There is a ver- there is a correct term for this. Um, but basically, yeah, I don't think they were the ones who actually performed the hack. I am more confident that they bought them. And do we have details yeah. about what the actual hack was? Uh, yeah, while well, you guys talk about that, I will let you know. Yeah, so, so not the tell people how one would do it. Let's talk a little bit about, we, we talked about laundering and this is what this, this case is about. Uh, we can talk about money laundering in general um, and the processes in which one does that. So, there are generally three steps to money laundering, right? And uh, the first step is placement. So, you have your dirty money and you need to place it, integrate it into the financial system. Right, and this is for traditional money laundering. Uh, we, we won't break out like the additional steps that you have to do to place it into the integrated the into the financial system for crypto right now. But you have your dirty money, and then you place it into the financial system. Right, then you have to layer it, and this is you know a ton of transactions. Uh, this is similar to what like tumblers were claiming they they did a while ago. Uh, with crypto, but you have to have uh, it look like it, it, that money is being spent somewhere and uh, in a legitimate form. So you're, now you're layering it, right? So you have these invoices from these companies and you're paying out these funds and these companies are getting all these monies, but all those companies are actually owned by like one of your other cronies and they are now helping you layer that money. And then once that money is deemed, you know, quote unquote clean, you have actual integration back into the regular system. And what I mean by that is this is where you have this company that 
you know, got paid for all these invoices. And then um, they're going to take that money and they're going to buy assets. So they're going to buy, you know, homes, land, gold, all these other items uh, that actually have real world value in them. And uh, they're going to start holding those. And that is the money laundering cycle. And uh, it's a very simplified form uh, of it. But that is, you know, from a high level, what money laundering is. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's done every single day by criminals. And every, I love it when I hear senators in the US talk about Bitcoin or crypto and they talk about like, you know, oh, it's used for criminals and money laundering and stuff like that. I'm like, come out. What, it, what is, what, what do criminals mostly use? Like what, what is the, the I think def- dollars. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is the preferred <laughs> method of getting, uh, you know, criminals paid? And the answer is the United States dollar. Right. It's not crypto. Criminals aren't like, yo, hey, uh, pay me in crypto. Right. Um, They're like, hey, yo, uh, I'm going to sell you this dirty bomb and you pay me in the United States dollars. Right. And they're like, oh, okay, Yeah, totally fine. We'll do this. Um, So uh, I don't know. (laughs) The part I said I don't know, too, is is this next part that I was coming up. Um, Do we? are are uh are entrepreneuring drug dealers taking uh you know crypto now for for, for some of their goods I or mean, are they still they still a cash business well they're I probably mean, just using venmo or something like that. yeah and, and <laughs> I, I don't mean I, I don't mean like the dark net ones right the ones that are sending the heroin and shoes and blank cd cases um but but the ones on your street right yeah t- yeah they they probably are taking like yeah they're paypal what else? They got a little stripe stripe processor right well, it's, there. It, it's it's kind of interesting because Venmo has uh, Venmo has made it very it has had a lot of communications about it of how they are now reporting to the IRS. Um, so I think like that will probably also change things. But I think starting this year, Venmo is starting to report uh, basically money that is that is regularly transferred to the IRS, and they have warnings all over the place to be like, hey, by the way, like this is this is something that we're doing now. Um, that's but a good I, like, call out. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, um, I mean, I, I've always, I, I've always been somewhat skeptical about crypto. Um, kind of like the odd one out, especially in in my industry, uh, and it's specifically for this, right? Like the, the 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 fact that it's always traceable. Like this is a really cool property of it. But the whole premise of like you are actually anonymous to some extent is fundamentally incorrect. And so a lot of folks that are engaging in 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 using cryptocurrency for these purposes, uh like it could be that you're doing a bunch of shady stuff now and you are like, okay, cool, I'm gonna stop doing that. And 10 years from now, the blockchain is still around. All those records are still there. If there's sufficient interest mm-hmm. and you're doing something sufficiently shady, like they'll be able to unwind it all the way back. Like that, those records are permanent. They're not going anywhere. Like it is actually probably a more robust system than the standard set of like financial records that the usual financial institutions keep. Like it is, it is, it is at least going to be more comprehensive um, and, and more complete uh, because it literally is distributed, verifiable, and that is the way the protocol works. Like that is that is just the the, the basis for the platform. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with a traditional bank, you could just, you know, delete the database or burn the records. Yeah. Like the like <laughs> humans, humans are constantly making errors, especially clerical errors. You might lose the records. You might do something. It's a database. You have an outage, like, so, you know, a data center floods or something like that. There's all these ways that financial records could potentially get destroyed in the standard kind of like financial system. This is not. And then unless, unless Bitcoin ceases to exist, like that blockchain, that, that public record will continue to exist unto eternity. Yeah. Well, and it's part of the reason why the U.S. wants to move like away from cash and onto a system that could be on some type of blockchain, right? And now it may not be a public ledger like like what we have with Bitcoin. Um, I think their current dealings with like Coinbase and because they are working with these companies uh, is a private ledger. I know J.P. Morgan Chase has their private ledger. They want everyone to use, um, but that. Going to Chris's point is going to make it so that, yeah, if you did something even unintentionally, right? Or let's say you did something that was legal at that time, but then people, uh, laws have changed and it's not like it was retroactively changed. Um, but, you know, people are saying now, oh, this person did XYZ, right? They bought their car, their car, they bought a red car, right? Um, and uh, to use like an outrageous an example, right? And then 10 years later, buying red cars is like illegal, right? And it's viewed uh, the same as like puppy killing, right? You, you now have a record that you bought a red car 10 years ago and everyone's just like, oh, this person, like they're, they're a red car owner, right? Like, oh no. And it wasn't legal, but, but that stuff can be used against you and there will always be a record of like that transaction, Right. And, yep. and that is a ridiculous example that I gave um, kind of intentionally uh, to really extenuate the point. But it is something that is coming. Right. And then and th- oh, oh, Tom, I got to put on that tinfoil hat. Uh, and then we got the social credit score. Uh, oh, you God. know, and <laughs> no, boy, you're going to go. You're about to go down the tangent before you go down that tangent, though. I just wanted to kind of rewind a bit to something you said. Uh the quote you said where, you know, what else is used for money laundering is cash. I don't know if you were listening to the crypto CEO Congress uh, hearing, but Patrick McHenry, who is a United States congressman for North Carolina, he says that exact same thing. He's he's pro crypto. And he was saying, uh, essentially, I can quote him here. Uh, a few seconds. Let me get that quote up. Uh, in summary, they're talking. Uh, one of the congressmen was saying how crypto is normally used for nefarious means. And, you know, to just cut off somebody's like he basically says you know what else is used for nefarious activities cash so let's dispel the rumor now that digital asset technology looming threat to our financial system uh, so that's one of the congressmen who are pro crypto and then to Damn. add to the point of the what are housing prices in north carolina uh. <laughs> and, then, and then to then i think uh, chris mentioned something about uh the transaction history right and how crypto itself you know the whole idea is around you know being able to tra- uh, to trace transactions that occur on the blockchain because it's immutable, right? It's always there. So Bitfury's CEO, uh, Brian P. Brooks, he also says in that same Congress hearing that basically he would argue that crypto, that um, Bitfury's ability to trace crypto transactions is better than the current uh, financial systems that the government uses because tracing cash is extremely difficult once it's in cash as to where crypto is always traceable, or at least I should say, when you're doing things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, it's always traceable, right? 
So those are just um, two interesting points that I just wanted to make sure we, we hit on before we move forward that while it is a very common idea that, you know, oh, you know, congressmen are all, are, you know, the government's all fully against the, the cryptocurrency, but you have certain representatives in certain states who are extremely pro-crypto and they believe the exact same things we're saying. Look, you know, cash has always been used because you can't really track cash as to where trying to do illicit things with crypto is not as simple. Right. It's not as simple as it used to be, should we say. You want you can't just hop on a Silk Road, you know, RIP, right? Uh you can't just go and, you know, buy some stuff off Silk Road and call it a day, right? And that's that that world doesn't exist anymore. Um but anyways, go ahead and start talking about your social credit score. Oh no, 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 no. no. Uh, was, before we get to that, <laughs> um uh, I do want to push back a little bit on the uh how traceable the Bitcoin blockchain is because uh, I, I really want to know what these companies like Chainalysis, is that what it is? Yeah, I think you got it um, right. I want to know what they can do with coin joined coins, like if you're using Wasabi Wallet. I it, Yeah, go ahead. Uh, do you know how, if they can analyze that? So the way most analysis works, um, especially, so I recently had to do this for a business where I had to go through a, um, a different crypto banks had requirements. And one of them was, I had to put in my origin wallet address for everything. So the way these work is they go based on your origin address. So specifically in like businesses and stuff, when you want to do anything in the crypto space as a business, you have to have a central wallet that every transaction you've ever done and ever will do will come from, right? So if I, if me as a company has a, a ledger device, I have to ensure that that's where all my transactions will come from. The central wallet must be from that ledger because when you go to sign up for these business accounts, they ask you, what is your main business crypto address? And then they do the analysis from there. And that's that's how they do these things is basically they trace the funds um, from central uh, addresses. So even though you're on an exchange, so let's say you have all your money in Coinbase, right? Uh, Gemini, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what, it, what uh, exchange it is. They have a cold and hot wallet, right? But internally, they still map source of origin from all crypto transactions inward. So you're not like once you're Bitcoin, let's say you send Bitcoin to Coinbase. It's not like they just forget where that um, where that initial Bitcoin came from. The address is recorded. You know, it's on the ledger so they can always just look it up that way. But they associate that origin address with your own with your identity. Right. And then Mm -hmm. from there, when you deposit uh, or sorry, when you withdraw, they also, even though you have a specific, you know, it's coming from Coinbase, they track that transaction. They know that, hey, at this point, this amount came from this Coinbase wallet. And then when they start doing the analysis backwards, they're like, okay, you know, this Ethereum went to this uh, smart contract, right? Let's just say a smart contract that came from origin address coming out of Gemini. Well, since Gemini sends pretty much everything from the same address, then what they have to do is be like, hey, Gemini, we need to know what the association with mm. this is. And now, depending on how transparent they are, they might just say, look, I'm not going to tell you the user, but I'll tell you that this is the correct origin address of where we got those funds from, right? Minus, you know, whatever profits or losses they made. And then that's kind of how they do it. I di- can't talk to the Wasabi wallet because I don't know enough to actually make a comment on that one. But I can kind of tell you how normal analysis would work. Yeah, I'll... um. Uh, I think the short explanation for how CoinJoin works is uh, you fire up a wallet that that supports it, like Wasabi, and then you 
um, enter into a pool with, say, like 49 other people. So then you have 50 people who all send the same amount of Bitcoin um, into the same transaction. And then that same amount gets emitted out of that one transaction. So you have like 50 inputs going into a single transaction, and then 50 yeah. coming out. So, so normally you see that come from, that that is very common in exchanges, right? Like, and when when you're sending Bitcoin, they're not just doing a single transaction, right? They're doing this massive transaction. You could look at it if you if you want a good example. Of what you're talking about, I, I I just had to look it up real quick to to catch what you were talking about. If you withdraw money from Coinbase, look at that transaction ID. You are not pulling in that much, so you'll notice that half the time, or I guess most of the time, when you make a withdrawal from those from those uh, exchanges, and you look at the specific transaction, there is a ton of Bitcoin being moved, right? And they because they yeah, batch sure. it, they do this kind of coin drum, what you're talking about, right? They batch the the transactions out, so it, it can still work, right? As long as the central or as long as there is some source that knows where that initial pool came or where the initial coins came from, it'll be fine. But if it's like, let's say we all generated a Bitcoin wallet and then we all did a transaction that way, I don't know enough to say, uh, would they be able to trace each individual one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... But anytime you deal with any exchange, you're pretty much, uh, <laughs> you know... I, I mean, you're hosed if you ever do KYC, basically. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, even I, then, I, you don't even have to do it. <laughs> yeah, and I think the one of, one of the interesting things about this, because it turns into this really this really cool graph analysis problem, right? Because it's like, I could just spin up a wallet and then I could get some other entity to just transfer a bunch of funds to me. Um, and it's like, okay, cool. Now there's funds in this wallet and like my identity is not associated with this wallet. Maybe it's just somebody else that has... like If somebody is going to give you currency there's going to be some sort of relationship there, right? So even if there's not anything, if there's a specific wall that has a bunch of funds in it and these funds came from a bunch of different places and we don't know who whose identity is actually tied to that wallet, well, we can then look at like, well, where did all the money come from and where do we have identities associated with those? And that at least gives you a pretty good tip, right? It's like, oh, well, it turns out that these three different people that we know through KYC uh, have sent funds to this wallet. Okay, then whoever owns this other wallet probably knows these three people as well. Right. So it's kind of like it's kind of the deal where um, even if you are so it's like 23 and me, I never wanted to do 23 and me because I was like, I don't want my genetic information in some big database. And my sister sends me a text message like, hey, guess what? I did 23 and me and here's our results. I'm like, (laughs) damn it. (laughs) Like, Can you please delete? (laughs) Yeah. Like like guilty by association. Right. So it's not just up to you. It's also the network that you're interacting with. And if you're interacting with parties that can be found, that's going to be like, and and there is sufficient motivation to find you. That's going to be a really good kind of like capability for whoever whoever's trying to find you. Exactly, and that's the, that's the biggest thing you have to remember. Like the fun, the the coin has to come from somewhere, unless it's minted and it was minted from, or not minted. Sorry, unless it was mined and it was mined from your own miner and you weren't part of a pool and it's part, it's still in the address, and then you send that to yourself. Then maybe, maybe the origin of those those uh, coins will be more difficult to identify. But then you still have the problem of well, eventually you're going to want to turn that into fiat because look, the 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 way the world works still is is we still run in fiat, and unless you're, I, I don't think you can actually live on Bitcoin just yet. And I'm pretty sure Drew, someone's going to make a comment saying I'm wrong, which great. I'm I'm glad there's certain areas that you can, but it's probably areas you don't want to live in personally. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I recently asked a um, uh, a home builder, like, "Hey, do you 
do you guys, um, you know, accept Bitcoin if someone wants to buy a house through Bitcoin? And they're like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> what are, you, are you from Silicon Valley? And I was like, no, I was just wondering. I thought it'd be cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're and- like, no. I was like, do you know anyone that accepts like any home builders that accept cryptocurrency? Of they're course like, they're going to say no to that. No. Like, they're like, no, no one accepts that. So I, I called a few other ones. And like every single one was just like, are you crazy? Like, no, we accept. <laughs> and then every single uh, one called the FBI and was like, I just got this phone call. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but here's the this thing. Drew guy. <laughs> here's the thing. It's not that they can't do it, right? Like it is very, there is a process to our business to accept cryptocurrency yeah. like anything else. And it's let just me super you, difficult. That process sucks. It yeah. is brutal. I just went through it. It took me three months to get my 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 approval and even then it's like god the amount of back and forth the amount of documents my firstborn i'm pretty sure they wanted a stool sample at some point like it was it was a really bad process and and i understand right i know why they have to do it but yeah the the answer is drew it they could right there there could be a business that you know that builds houses that does accept crypto it's just do they want to go 3 to 4 months of back and forth with paperwork I had to send over a shareholder agreement like four times because it was missing some information. They're like, oh, no, we have to restart your entire uh, thing because you forgot to add this one item. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't need to add that item. It's not legally required. They're like, it doesn't matter. Um, so, like, you know, it's just one of those things where anybody can, any business could accept crypto and run off of it. And, you know, move back and forth uh, between crypto and cash. It's just it's extremely difficult. And that's probably why you haven't found a house builder that would be able to do it or would be willing yeah. to accept it is they don't want to deal with it. And let's not even talk about the tax liabilities uh, associated with that, like the amount of extra work to validate that how much you're claiming is good and then capital gains and losses associated with that. It's it's a nightmare. Uh, thankfully, you know, if you use like Gemini and you got turbo tax, you push a button and it's like done. But you know, not, not everybody gets to get that lucky, especially about the size of your business. You might have to go through a CPA and then they're freaking out. Like you, you know, we were talking about earlier where they're like, I don't know how to deal with this. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, that's the nature of the beast. And I remember having to do it. I was kind of mentioning to do a while back in 2018 when I had to do file taxes, there was no way to do it. I had to hire like a super highly specialized CPA who was like one of the five people in you know in California who did know how to do it and handle it. And you know they they read me right. It was it was a very expensive thing to do. Um, I'm going on a tangent. I apologize. But anyway, <laughs> uh, one of the other things I want to hint on was DeFi exchanges. So I don't know how familiar you guys are with decentralized finance. Uh, a bit. We're fans. You're a fan. (laughs) So decentralized finance in a nutshell, for those who don't know, is basically smart contracts. And smart contract is a fancy way of saying code that runs basically autonomously inside of these blockchains. And if that sounds kind of, you know, magical, it really isn't. It's it's no different than you going to a website, right? And I I know I'm going to get breamed with people being like, I don't know what I'm talking about. But look, when we're trying to talk smart contracts, the best way to think about it is code that does code things without human interaction. So the best example is, let's say, an escrow. An escrow could be a very easy way to understand a smart contract. I send in one or, you know, one Ethereum in the escrow. Drew sends in one Ethereum and then some condition happens and then the money's released, right? Either, you know, or sorry, 
The money's released to Drew. I did a terrible example there. I sent a on Ethereum to the smart contract. Some event waits to occur that the smart contract's waiting from some sort of Oracle. There's a buzzword for you that I know Drew's smiling about. Um, the Oracle says, hey, that event happened correctly. And then it releases the funds to Drew with no human interaction. And that's a very small example of decentralized finance. And then we go into kind of like the crazy thing, lending, exchanges, um, NFTs, because I know we're going down that route here in a bit. Um, but essentially, decentralized exchanges are really cool. There's no KYC required because you can't KYC when there's no single entity that runs the exchange. The exchange runs independent. It's just code that's sitting out in the ether that anybody can interact with. And they're really cool. The biggest problem with them is, one, the biggest DeFi exchanges are on Ethereum. And for anybody who's dealt with Ethereum fees, they're enormous. Uh, thank you, Crypto Cats and all those other dumb projects. Um, and the second part is, is any sort of fast transactions are just not going to happen. Like if the market's dumping and you need to sell your, your your holdings before it continues falling further, yeah, you're just you're screwed. 30 minutes you know, before your transaction is confirmed on some of these exchanges or the contract handles them, it's just a nightmare. But it is really cool. And it is, I, I do agree with, Decentralized finance is the push for the future and decentralized banking, lending, hedge funds, which is actually super cool, but a topic for another time. But yeah, no, decentralized exchanges do exist. And hopefully in the future, we will see something like a full decentralized bank. And we're pretty close to it. You know, there's a lot of lending platforms where as long as you understand how Ethereum works, uh, you can borrow wrapped Bitcoin and you can use that to transact or flash loans, which are also this really cool idea of Basically, you see an inefficiency in a market, you immediately borrow the money, sell or make the trade you want to want to make, get the profits and then pay back the loan instantly. And if, if you've never seen that or haven't looked into that, it's really cool, but also extremely dangerous because if transaction times take too long, you're, you're, you're kind of boned. And yep. I guess the, there are ways that these decentralized finance or these DeFi exchanges do operate quickly is when they do kind of cross-exchange type things. So uh, there's an exchange called DMEX. And the only reason I bring them up is because I've used them before. But what they do is you move your money into an Ethereum contract and you have to pay your Ethereum fees. So you're looking at $50, $60 to move your money originally. And then what they do is they credit you on XDAI. So XDAI is a different uh, exchange. I can't remember what it stands for. It is the Gnosis chain. So what they do is, is they credit you that same money on Gnosis Chain. Um, and basically what that does is that blockchain has no fees. So you transact and you do all these crazy uh, exchanges in real time and you're making trades on this cross exchange, on this cross chain. And then when you're really winning, when you're ready to withdraw, they credits your, the XDAI contract, talks to the Ethereum contract and then releases your money plus profits. And it's really cool if look into that when you have a chance. Uh, but yeah, no, the there are ways to interact in the crypto markets in a non-centralized way. And when we say centralized exchange, we're talking Gemini's, Coinbase's. Uh, I don't see Robinhood here because if you know what you're really buying on Robinhood, it makes you really terrified. You're just buying the contract. You're not buying the underlying asset. And if you don't believe me, try to withdraw your Bitcoin from Robinhood yep. or Cash App. Yep. Yep. That's but anyways. 
That, that, so distributed finance is really interesting, um, and and I think one of one of the ways that I've had it described to me is like, look, there's all of these various things that existing financial institutions will do, like giving you a loan or like handling escrow stuff like that, and it's effectively just taking that process and turning it into code uh, so that it's running uh, on on a blockchain somewhere. Um, but one of the things that I've heard that is happening here is very similar to what is what happened in 2008, where somebody will take out a loan. So we'll have some collateral, right? Um, and they will then get a loan. So they put some amount in, they get a loan for more that, that's held as collateral. And then they take that loan and they use that to take out another loan. So they just continue yeah. to lever up. Um, and one of the one of the really one of the things that I think is most potentially insidious about distributed finance is like, look, if you look at what happened in, in 2008, one of the ways that we were able to avoid like an absolute financial catastrophe was these are human entities that are run by humans that have relationships. And it's like, okay, so we had some mergers, we had some acquisitions, we had some money moved around, we had some like uh, financial policy change changes, and that mostly avoided the the absolute like potential worst worst case scenario but when it's all code you can't just stop in uh, step in and throw a circuit breaker right like if you if you get margin called for instance it could and you're leveraged up through like taking loans on loans on loans on loans that will just completely unwind there's nothing that is going to stop it mm -hmm. so there's no way that you can actually put a circuit breaker in place to prevent the sort of thing that happened in 2008 it will actually just it's just code it's just going to run it's just going to happen um, and and some would argue that that's a good thing, right? <laughs> yes, some would yeah. say that it should do yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and just because I know we're in a security uh, podcast here, for those who aren't really in the know about how these smart contract uh, contracts are exploited, they're generally not exploited in the standard way. You're not, you know, finding remote code execution in a smart contract. What you're really finding is logic issues, because uh, smart contracts are still written by humans. And we have a tendency, you know, like anything else, we have to have a flow of logic, right? Like, oh, you know, you deposit this amount, you made this much money, you get, you know, we take our fees and then we, we, we withdraw it. You're allowed to take it back. But a lot of the exploits that are happening are uh, time of use attacks, which is basically I make a transaction and then I spend a crap ton of money on fees to get my second transaction to happen before the first one. And Bada bing, bada boom, I've now exploited that contract because, you know, the way the logic works out, you know, it gives me anything, right? Um, it can make me more money. I could withdraw other people's funds. I could, you know, I think one of the cool ones I saw demonstrated was uh, he was watching, you know, a transaction was about to occur on a smart contract and the, the contract had an ID and they were, they were depositing money in the ID, but he pushed his transaction ahead and was able to say, actually, that ID is going to me. And... You know, for stuff like that to happen, it has to be it has to be specific types of uh, logic issues, right? Specific types of um, flow uh, flow control problems. So, if you're interested in some kind of different type of exploitation, smart contracts are really cool to look at because, like you said, they're just code. So, if you do find one of these um, vulnerabilities who's going to say that you're not legally or who's going to say you're not using the smart contract has intended is so mm. much to say, right? Because, mm. you know, that's, that's the idea. Well, let me, uh, let me, how about that uh, wormhole exploit? Yeah. Woof. Well, the, yeah. So, so the wormhole exploit, and I'm, I'm going to probably get a bunch of this wrong. So I'm going to hopefully stick with the, the broad strokes. Um, 
but I, I think it was on Sol- Solana. Is that the? Yep. Was that, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. On Solana, and I don't really understand how their uh, smart contracts work, but it seems like it's something built on Rust, and you can potentially like swap. You can affect. There was something where in order for a transaction to happen, there was a signature verification that would occur. And based on the functionality that Solana provides, you actually have the ability to uh, override the signature verification. So you could, from my understanding, you could supply your own code. Um, And there was some hacker that was watching the uh, Git commit history for for the the actual Solana blockchain software. And it's just like he's just like looking at the at the changes that are happening um, and sees that there has been a patch issued related to signature verification. And it's like, oh, wait a second. This was patching a vulnerability. And by the way, this is the new software that has been updated. It's going to take a bit for that software to roll out because it's all these different nodes have to update their, their versions. Um, so he actually saw the change and then figured out how to exploit it and was able to change the way that a signature verification happened for a transaction and provide his own code that says, yep, this signature works. No problem. Don't worry about it. And was able to extract like $350 million, I think. In Ethereum, penny. basically getting getting the Solana blockchain to to take wrapped ETH and mint it back out to regular ETH into a into a um, wallet address of his choosing. I'm using he here. I'm just making an mm-hmm. assumption that it's that it's a guy. I have no idea who it actually is, but it was basically like it is a logic flaw in the actual blockchain software where they were able to swap their own code out for what does the signature verification and was able to do that to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Correct. Nuts. Yeah. So I just I just caught myself up on it. it. So yeah, basically the exploit was between the Ethereum blockchain and Solana network and the bridge, right? And again, for those who don't know, a bridge is basically a way for you to transfer assets or wrap assets from one one crypto exchange or one blockchain to another, right? So when we're talking about Solana, that is a completely separate blockchain with its own nodes, its own uh, miners, etc., from the Ethereum blockchain. And the way that you would get Ethereum from the Ethereum blockchain or Solana is to use one of these bridges. And what um, Chris is saying is basically they found an exploit that allowed them to generate a ton of what they call the wrapped Ethereum in the Solana blockchain without actually posting the Ethereum collateral on the Ethereum side, right? So if you're trying to look more into that, that's basically the, the keywords here. Um, Ethereum are crypto bridges, which is one of those interoperability. Oh my God, I said that word correctly. Wow. <laughs> one of those interoperability <laughs> uh, plays where it's like, oh, we want all these blockchains to be able to talk to one another because wouldn't that be cool? Um, so yeah, but yeah, reading up and what you said, yeah, my, my brain ticked. It's like, oh yeah, I remember these things. Yeah, and it's it's nuts that it's like, look, bug bounties, you find critical vulnerabilities in these like multi-billion dollar companies. It's like, thank you for your submission. Here's $10,000, here's $20,000, <laughs> here's $50,000. Um, there have been some, I, I think there was there was a exploit that was found against Coinbase that was paid out hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions. There was some. There was some exploit and some yeah. and some thing. Pretty good. That, yeah, but like the scale, the scale now of exploitation. Like anytime that we're talking about security, it's going to be how much money can you make, and so long as you invest less than that, then it's net positive, right? So if the stake is, oh, you can actually like the folks at Bitfin that did the Bitfinex thing. Years later, they're sitting on four point five billion dollars and in, in, in the case with with the wormhole exploit it's like oh hundreds of millions of dollars this is the this is the the the, the volume 
of money that you can make find the exploits here so people are super super motivated to to look and they're finding pretty interesting stuff yeah so the coinbase thing is actually pretty terrifying if you think about it so i'll just kind of give a quick summary on that and let me know if i'm talking you guys' ears off and just over you know no, just great. talk no, over great. me okay. I promise. So the Coinbase stuff is actually pretty terrifying. And I didn't hear about it. I heard about it through a Twitter post like everybody else did, right? It, it was it felt like Log4J all over again. Uh, <laughs> so what happened? And what World War III. Ha- yeah, World War III. <laughs> uh, I, I was assuming uh. we weren't going to bring that up. But, um, <laughs> but basically what happened was Coinbase uh, a while back uh, revealed their advanced trading features. And a security engineer or security researcher is like, oh, you know, I'm, he, he's on Hacker One. He sees Coinbase is offering some decent payouts. He starts poking at it. And it was probably the most, the, the simplest exploit. We've all done it a million times in our jobs. It's, it, it shouldn't even exist in a platform uh, uh, as big as them. And all they did was is they captured a trade request, This in this case, a limit sell order in Burp. Notice that it said, Ethereum Euro, changed it to BTC Euro, hit uh, send. And they really thought they were going to get an error message back. And what they got was a limited sell order for Bitcoin at a certain price. And he didn't have any Bitcoin. And he's like, okay, well, that's terrifying, but he needed to push it. So he sent 50 SHIB over, or he sent 9.5 million SHIB over, right? Uh, SHIB coin. And then he put, he used that, he used 50 of that to put a 50 Bitcoin limit sell order on the books and everybody saw it and he immediately reported it. Now, here's the scary part. One, that takes zero effort to do. I'm kind of upset I didn't find it. I should have spent 10 minutes doing the most basic of (laughs) basic things and and found it and then, you know, made a killing. But here's the kicker. Coinbase only paid out $250,000. And I know most people are like, dude, that's a great payout. No, it's not. Do you understand the amount of impact that could have been made by that exploit? If anybody nefarious had found it, the amount of damage they could have single-handedly done to the crypto market would have been insane. Or they could have used it to slowly siphon out um, things. Now, we're all we're all white hats here. Uh, we all like bug bounties because, one, it lets us do what we want to do uh, for fun. And we get paid for it for you know being responsible and responsibly disclose. Um, exploits and everybody here already knows my opinion on responsible disclosure, so I won't get into it. Uh, but you know, they disclose it and they say, "Hey, you know, you should, you should, you know, I found this bug. You told you, and you should give me money." Uh, but two hundred fifty thousand seems very small for this uh, because one, it means that like most exchanges, you're just getting a credit, and two, you had every other exchange saying like, "If you ever found that on us, we'd give you millions." So it's one of those things where Coinbase could have done better. Uh, they did patch it almost instantly. It took, I think trade advanced trading was turned off within two minutes of him sending the Twitter out to the, or when it's uh, getting in touch with the Coinbase team, advanced features and all trading got halted and can't and cancel only was enabled. And then it was patched and then he got 250,000. But it's one of those, like you were saying, the amount of money that can be made finding these exploits are massive. And especially the DeFi space, uh, I know there's a lot of DAOs. If you go find that Twitter thread, a bunch of different projects were telling and basically saying, like, if you found anything equivalent, we're going to pay you out. This is how much our base pay would have been for this. Uh, if you want to find security bugs in this, feel free. We will pay you anywhere from here to here. And that's one of the things to look at. And I think FTX, the reason I brought them up was because someone you know, pinged them and was like, hey, FTX, you only offer a max of $2,000. And even they were like, no, 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 no. 
that is that is a lie. Two thousand dollars. If you had given this to us and it was that simple to do, we've given you millions. Yep. And that's the, yep. the the takeaway here is that most big companies who deal in how has in as much money as Coinbase does would have paid out substantially. And yep. I know I know Drew smiling over there because you, there is also other parties who would have paid out substantially <laughs> if you wanted to go that route. <laughs> So, yep, yep. But yeah, I, it's, I it's support crazy. only selling if you're not going to be part of a bug bounty, only selling to the government, not random third parties <laughs> yes, to the yes, U.S. government. The U.S. government specifically, because yeah, yeah, yeah but, specifically them. I'm sure insane. they had some black projects that needed funding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're, uh, we're running long on time, and we had one other thing that we wanted to touch on before wrapping up here. Um, and that was the recent uh, debacle around OpenSea with the NFTs uh, that that got there was there was a suspected hack that it's like oh man OpenSea has been hacked oh, what's going to happen but after a bit of digging it doesn't seem like it was actually a hack that is the current understanding that at least has been has been conveyed uh, Royal do you have a, a bit of background on kind of what happened there with with OpenSea and the the NFTs that got stolen Yeah so it's actually pretty oh man it, it hurts. All right. So here, so from my quick summary of it, because I'm, I, I definitely don't follow the NFT space uh, as well as everything else. And the reason is, is one, I love. All right, let me. I, I told Drew I had to, I had to make this disclaimer. I love the idea of NFTs. I hate the way we're using them right now. Who cares about crazy monkey image one and dog dog thing two? No one cares. It's all money laundering. We know it. They know it. Uh, there's already reports of people. There's already reports of people buying their own NFTs to spike the price up. If I have two hundred fifty thousand, I put out an NFT for ten dollars. I buy it for two hundred fifty thousand. What? I pay my fees and I, I lose what two hundred dollars. But now I have an NFT that's technically worth two hundred fifty thousand dollars or more. Uh, if you don't believe yeah. me, go look up the reports. There's tons of fake trades the, being done. The official term for that is called wash trading. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you lose your NFT, let's say it was stolen. Capital losses. Can yeah, you- exactly. Oh. That's, that's what I'm, that's what I've said. It's like, because that, that is, that is an interesting aspect of this whole market, right? Is that, okay, we're going to start taxing crypto and then like capital gains on crypto and stuff like that. That it, it, it follows that if you have something that you purchase with crypto, that is an asset. If that gets stolen or that gets it gets sold at a, at a great loss, like, I, I don't know how that isn't then considered capital loss. Then you get those three thousand dollars every year, baby. Keep it going. That's how you See, make that money. But remember, <laughs> there's the inverse as well. Technically, that guy made two hundred fifty thousand dollars. That he has to pay taxes on, right? If yeah, he bought yeah. his own NFT for ten dollars, now he has to do the inverse. But yeah. regardless, that's just my disclaimer on NFT. My my views on NFTs, but it was actually brilliant. And it, and I say that in like the worst way possible. OpenSea was trying to swap out their contract. They had a new version of the contract out and they needed people to migrate to the new contract, which basically meant signing a transaction to the new contract to move their NFTs from the current OpenSea contract to the new one. And basically all the attacker did was is he got the email saying, hey, we're doing a slow uh, migration to the new contract. And all he did was copy the template, put his own uh, you know, new contract in there with a fake landing page and blasted that out to everybody he knew or he had access to a mailing list of all the OpenSea customers. And a few of them, when they got this, they clicked the link and they signed this transaction. And what that new transaction actually did or the malicious transaction did was it basically transferred (laughs) the NFT over to this guy's address. Now, it wasn't a hack on OpenSea, but it was definitely a really clever phishing attack. 
which only works in these scenarios where they're kind of doing this intermittent rollout. And and I say intermittent, but they might not have been doing an intermittent rollout. But let's be honest, if I get two emails from OpenSea, am I really going to open the second one? The the original one? No, I'm going to open the first one if they both say the same thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's how most retail traders or most, you know, uh, humans. people see that. Is, yeah. Yeah. Humans. People. Most people will be like, oh, I got two emails. They both say the same thing. Let me click the first one and do what the first one says. And it just said, hey, migrate your contract. Click here. Goes to the fake landing page. They sign the transaction. Uh, good old yep. MetaMask is like, are you sure? And you're like, yes, click. And then that's it. You lost your NFTs. And that that's the that that's one of the things I've, I've been dabbling a little bit in Web3 and, and seeing what it's like to have MetaMask and pairing and all the like the signing and stuff like that. And And I think this attack really highlights the fact that one of the big problems with the web3 ecosystem is verifying what you're actually doing right because it's like i i don't know what the prompt looks like but i don't know i don't know how OpenSea. i i don't know if there is existing technology where like for instance if i do a sign in with google thing sign in with google is going to present to me here is the entity that you're actually like signing into. Here's the permissions that you're giving. And they have a number of like phishing protections in there. Like you can't, for instance, you can't create a, an app and like have it in the OAuth flow that has the word Google in it. So you, you can't have an app that like is, is coining itself as Google. And I'm not aware of any technology that exists within the Web3 space that is some way to verify that the contract that you are interacting with is truly owned by the entity that you think it is. Because it, it, it's, kind of like it's kind of like a chicken or the egg problem. If they do something where it's like, oh yeah, well it's owned by this particular address, and you know it's got this thing on IPFS, and here's the logo, and here's like information about it. it's like cool. I'm just gonna take that same shit and I'm gonna create my own, and it's just gonna look the exact same, and still it, it's. A, I don't know how you solve this problem, but this is effectively just a clever phishing attack um, that exploited this lack of verifiability of what contract are you actually interacting with and who owns it. Yeah, do you have a ledger device? I do have a ledger device. So one of the things that they do, which I mean, it works, but man, is it a pain is anytime you try to sign anything, you have to verify the transaction, not only on MetaMask, but on the ledger itself. Ah. And I don't know if you've ever seen those addresses, but basically you're like, you're looking through, you're like, oh God, there's like 15 pages, you know, on the little ledger device to verify Mm -hmm. that the transaction you're making is correct and where it's going to is correct. Yep. And if you're like me or anybody else, you're going to look at the first four bits, the last four bits, and you're like, ah, that looks good enough to me. Um, (laughs) Yep. Yep. (laughs) So it's, yeah, there, there are ways that you can verify these transactions, but like you said, like, the 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 normal retail trader, the normal person is not going to go through the extensives. They're going to see MetaMask pop up. They're going to see the OpenSea logo, some big old number. And they're like, I don't know what that means. And they're going to hit sign. Right. Yep. And they're going to get the, are you sure? And they're going to say, sure. And yep. then the contract will execute. Um, but yeah, it, NFTs yeah, a, are interesting. It's a conditioning thing, right? Because they've mm-hmm. probably signed other contracts, didn't verify the long number. And they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, it was I totally fine. Okay on this. Yeah, mm-hmm. it always works. Okay. No problem. Yeah. Now, I, I imagine a position where MetaMask can do something fancy where they're like, okay, uh, we have verified contracts that if you think you're going to OpenSea, we give you, you know, the old Twitter blue check. Yeah, that is OpenSea's current contract. I don't understand why we haven't gotten to that point yet. And I imagine part of it's just this whole it's anti-crypto decentralized uh you know, it's it's anti that, right? Because now we're we're applying, you know, yeah, this contract's legit OpenSea. We're validating it. OpenSea has to openly, you know, 
I guess, KYC with the MetaMask company or whatever. And it becomes this ordeal. But it would be something if like, you know, even Ledger, you know, I wouldn't mind if Ledger's just like, yeah, this is legit OpenSea's contract. Give me the green check mark, or, you know, instead of that long number, it just says OpenSea verified. And, mm. you know, and I, and it's, it's just one of those things where it wouldn't take that much effort to do. Um, and it would make these kind of phishing attacks and these contracts be difficult because imagine a scenario where, you know, let's say MetaMask does implement this across the board for a lot of big projects. Well, when that prompt comes up, it could say unverified. Like it has no idea who contract this is. Mm. And I think that would be enough deterrent uh, mm. for well, most people to say, you know, I'm used to seeing OpenSea there. I don't see OpenSea there. Maybe I wait. Mm. So, uh, I mean, the Ethereum ecosystem already has uh, support for something like this using Ethereum name service. Mm-hmm. Uh, I assume OpenSea has OpenSea.eth. I'm not sure if that gets shown in MetaMask, though. Yeah, I wouldn't know. I, like I said, I don't. I don't really deal. I don't really buy or sell NFTs. I've made them. I, I you know, I've, I've messed around with the contract code to do that and to generate them. And just like uh, crypto tokens, if you want to make your own NFT project, there's there's different RFCs. I like eleven 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 thirty sevens, and it's it's basically different uh, token formats for NFTs. But then when you look at OpenSea. You don't even have to go that far, right? All you have to do is upload an image and hit sign. It's like, and, it's like Instagram. It's straight yeah, up. Just, exactly. It, it's the exact same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the crazy part is, is you avoid the minting fee because that only happens when someone buys it. So like the barrier of entry is the initial transaction you make to verify your address when you first sign up. So it costs you 100 bucks to join OpenSea, basically, to sign this transaction with them. And then after that, you can just upload images and hope someone buys them. And then the moment someone buys them, that's it. Uh, you suddenly have uh, the fees are covered and you got profit. So anyways, <laughs> and if you really want to be scared, minting a new tokens, uh, two lines of code. Yeah. Yep. 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 Terrifying. <laughs> All right. I think we're, yeah, Drew, you want to, you want to yeah. wrap us up? I'll wrap it up. <clears throat> do you want me to do the three call outs, Chris? Or nah, fuck it. Oh, okay. Nah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Royal, for joining us today. Definitely tons of great information. Uh, Make sure to check out the description. We will have links to many of the things that we talked about, some of the projects that we talked about, as well as the articles around the uh, various hacks that we talked about in this episode. But as always, Royal, we appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Royal. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Security Explained. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for new topics that our audience finds interesting, and you might be able to pick our next show. Feel free to reach out via social media or give us a rating on your listening platform to let us know how we're doing. You can find us on the web at securityexplained.fm or on Twitter at SecExplained. Thanks again, and until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.